Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. I kind of space out doing as much looking, gazing into your eyes as um, I ought to. Hmm. Yeah, it's a danger, a distraction. Yeah. From, Earth, from staying focused on Earth. <laughs> I'm not sure it is a danger. I think that it's they're complementary. But let's um, hustle forward. So, Andrew, what's the rap, brother? Well, we're going to be talking about Earth today. Earth. And I thought uh, we... I would like to start on a personal note mm. by reflecting on, on how I feel and I suppose have always felt simultaneously called to nourished by and estranged from the earth. Mm. And I'm, on that note, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a poem that I wrote oh. years ago about a, a visual and uh, emotional experience I had once after discovering some sort of um, some sort of kids fort uh, being reclaimed by a forest, the type of um, kids fort that a father parent might build for a child. Hmm. And I felt this deep yeah. connection to that um, act of earthly reclaiming and also um, some estrangement from it. So without further ado, I will read this poem entitled What a Wooden Structure Was. Hmm. Willa and I and Marco and Anthony walked the woods near Tivoli Bays, past September, Saturday, still summery. Sun charged the air with a warmth that come night, left with the light, leaving the leafy grass frosty. And there it was, a wooden structure in the wood was. We didn't know what it was, a child's failed fort or beery hut for hunting deer. Hmm. Goldenrod grew up through the pulp, pulling the earth up to the sun that poured over it. This carcass of squishy wood in the woods was, circled by gnats and flies and shiny green bugs, like us on sunny earth and breathing. And that's that's where I wanted to start I, I, with this uh, this this feeling of being called to the earth and mystified by it, but simultaneously estranged by it to a degree. And, and it reminded me a little bit of Genesis, hmm. the first of eight chapters of, of Genesis, where um, biblical Adam right, um, has a very close connection to the earth, but then, of course, um, is estranged from it through, uh, through his disobedience. Hmm. Well, I think the one thing I notice in your poem is the habitation, this fort, hmm. and my feeling of sympathy for living within that, you know, dwelling in the philosophical sense, you know, and that we seek a dwelling in amidst those elemental pushing and pulling that you speak of. Hmm. Thank hmm. you. Um, I like the ending of your poem. I like the abruptness of the ending, which, uh, you know, I'm thinking, trying to articulate in my mind is kind of about the abruptness of of seeing the, the fort or the abruptness of its collapse. I don't know what exactly. It just seemed like the right ending, you know, the, the ending, the slightly a disjunctive ending, you know, because we're sort of talking about that disjuncture between ourselves and the earth. Yeah, but fortunately not with each other. What about the, uh, what about just like, what are the earth, what does the earth mean? So it's, uh, so it's this planet, we have sort of commonly come to term earth, I guess, within, you know, kind of Western, and then also the materia, the dirt, the clay. The humunculus. Yeah. I had lots of ideas to prepare for this, and one of them was to look up the names of Earth. Because obviously Earth is the English name for Earth, even in French, right? Isn't it La Terre? 
so uh, you know, every, there must be thousands of names for this planet we live on. But I forgot to do it. <laughs> yeah, Earth is is Old English um, and is uh, has cognates in High German and in Scandinavian, and you know, it's it's a per, pervasive term in relation to. Uh, you know, what the Anglo-Saxons would have called Middingar, Middingar, and the E-A-R-D or A-R-D, that's Earth in Old English. Right. I thought the Old English word was Eorthe. Eorthe, yeah. Yeah. Did you guys um, grow up as children around Earth? Or did you have a, a, a connection to the Earth? Was that was that part of your um, early experience? You know, running around in the, in, the, in the mud and walking around the woods and chasing squirrels and listening to birds. But is that Earth? <laughs> is that yeah. really just experiencing ourselves? I mean, all I perceive is my body. I think mm-hmm. that's, that's a pre-Socratic saying, Democritus, I think. And, you know, it is true that those are all sensational phenomena, vision, hearing, touch. But talking about Earth, aren't we talking about something that is other? What do you mean other? Well, other than something that is is beneath us, something Mm -hmm. that we're walking on, this Earth, this planet, but also this, the, the... Materia of the Earth itself. Yeah, that's what I was. That's what I meant. So when you were children, did you have a relationship to that? Did you feel drawn to it? I know I, I spent a lot of time in the woods digging holes. <laughs> I don't quite know what I was looking for, but <laughs> there was a, an element of compulsion. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Poughkeepsie, New York. Oh yeah, I, didn't know I, that. I grew I, up next to um, like a drainage basin, which was probably about seventy or eighty acres of woodland. Uh-huh. Nice. Uh-huh. I used to look for for culverts and caves, like a cave or places where I was inside of um, the earth and sort of, you know, could nose around. I've done a little bit of caving, not much. Yeah. I grew up in Manhattan in the very northernmost neighborhood in Manhattan in Inwood, so which is named after the woods. So I like to say that I come from the most rural section of Manhattan. And I did have, you know, so until I was four, I lived in the West Village. Then from four to 15, I lived in this housing project. So there were many years where I was not old enough to cross the street and go to Highbridge Park. You know, so from like the from around four till eight or something, I was mostly on this big block, which was the housing project. After that, I could go across the street and do kind of woodsy explorations. One of the things that my friends and I did a lot, like you think of yourselves as digging holes, which of course I dug holes, but I remember us damming up streams. There'd be little streams and we'd get some kind of moss or some kind of clods of earth and we'd dam up the stream. This was like exciting to us. So I did have a somewhat... Despero, up there in Inwood, didn't you have the cave of the first kiss? Or something? (laughs) I don't know the cave of the first kiss. But didn't you uh, invite... Oh, oh, my my cave, my personal cave. Yeah, I mean, when I was in high school, by the time I was in high school, I had to find a place to smoke marijuana, you know. So my friends and I would go into this cave in um, Fort Tryon Park, still there. But I think I might be a little too fat to fit into it at this point. There was kind of a narrow crevice. There were basically two rocks that were glacial deposits. Anyway, that's what I theorize. (laughs) And you had to sort of slip between the two of them and then kind of shimmy through this crack, kind of vaginal crack. And then you'd be on this very cool shelf of, of soil. And then sometimes in there you would find um, bags of glue that the local working class kids had been sniffing. Sniffing and it, glue, yeah. And now the glue had hardened in the bottom of the bags. It was kind of chilling to see. And... Yeah. Uh, 
and then I, I we would smoke marijuana there and I think the smoke probably went out of a hole of the cave but we thought we were completely you know uh, secluded there and then sort of on my first date with my wife I took her to that cave we went you know my wife is pretty adventuresome so I took her to that cave and we sat there for a while and you know whatever experience the kind of strange clammy cold uh, mystery of a cave in Manhattan <laughs> yeah and I also took her the same date to see Mother Cabrini in the Mother Cabrini shrine which is like in Washington Heights maybe I don't know whatever a quarter mile from the cave where there's Mother Cabrini is in a glass case in the altar but it's not the real Mother Cabrini, it's a wax effigy of her in which her bones are preserved, you know, hidden uh, inside the wax effigy. Every time you see it, you think she's about, you see her moving. She's very earthy. She's the first American saint, and uh, I kind of do get the sense, maybe it's a whatever prejudice or a stereotype of Italians, <laughs> but I do think of her as kind of earthy, yeah. Mm. The uh, it's, you know, one of the, you know, the proto-Indo-European cognate of Earth is uh, is er, 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 which also has that evocation of sort of Ur, the, the city of Ur. The Mesopotamian city. Yeah. And then also in the German, the Ursprach, Sprach uh, means to speak. And in German, Ur is, is first or primordial. Right, right. Like people say, you can say in English, like he was the Ur rock star or something like that. Right. Yeah. And Sprach was the, to yeah. scatter, you know, literally to speak means to scatter. Huh. Mm. What is the prefix Ur? I've heard that. I've heard like an apartment referred to as Ur bachelor pad. Ha ha ha. First. Literally, I think first. it means first. Like yeah, the, like the original. The original, yeah. you know, the or, ideal, the uh, the absolute, the uh, more like the more like the quintessential, the quintessential you know? bachelor pad, er, yeah. bachelor pad. I I understand. Yeah. Ha, ha, ha. And I have to say here, I think at this point, that Adam, the first that you were referring to earlier, yeah. Adam means earth. Yeah. Adam means soil in Hebrew. So you know, like God breathes and he picks up a clump of dirt of of clay and molds it into the shape of a person anyway that's how i picture god doing little clay. right Ble yeah. breathes into it and makes it a living being who is the first person and that adam means earth means soil yep. i believe and then it also picks up yeah. with the golem do you know the golem yeah uh borges writes about um, this phenomena of, of making a clay effigy and then of putting a coin under the on the tongue or under the tongue of this clay effigy mm. and then inscribing certain letters from the Torah, you know, from language, language phenomena into the forehead and then speaking certain words mm. and then creating a... Uh, a, um, a servant without a soul. A soul. Yeah, sort of a superpowered, almost like the Frankenstein's monster or the Hulk. Or a like a superpowered being who I think typically uh, goes out of control and, um, and has to be uh, kind of destroyed or what's the word, sedated. My memory, which if I have this right, is you're on the forehead you write emet in Hebrew, which uh. means truth. And okay. then when the when the when the golem gets out of control, you erase the aleph, you erase the first letter, which means met. Then it's just met, which means death. And then the thing dies, automatically dies once it has the word death written on its head and no longer emet, which means truth. Did I say that? Yeah. And then, and then also, you know, in uh, you know where the golem is supposedly is in the you know supposedly there is a golem in the attic of the Prague synagogue and Hitler destroyed all of Europe but he maintained in a pristine condition that synagogue um, 
perhaps, I'm not saying he did it because of the golem, but it could be that the golem, the force field of the golem, like protected the synagogue. That's where Hitler was going to have the museum of the Jewish race. That's where he's going to, once he destroyed every Jew, the art of, he would have a museum of artifacts of Jews in that synagogue. Anyway, that's the story I heard. Wow. wow. And the golem is still up there, but, you know, you have to have special permission to see him. So is the go- the golem is mentioned in um, in the Tanakh somewhere? What's the biblical? Um, I no, I don't think it's in uh, the Bible. What we would call the Bible, I think it must be in the Talmud. I don't, you know, I I always say this about my knowledge of Judaism, and I go to the synagogue almost every week lately. But uh, everything anyone asks me about Judaism, I I say one sentence, and then the second sentence I reach my barrier of ignorance you know so here i am already at it Emmett <laughs> mitt uh transmission was very uh very powerful so oh thank you one thing i would ask you though is is the golem an earthwork uh-huh it's made out of earth right i mean it's it has the same what's the word a- ambiguity that that human beings have it's Right. Partly Earth, and it's partly motivated by some spiritual power, I think. I mean, that's how I see I, it. I was, I was kind of, um, yeah, 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 I think so. I was kind of making more reference to uh, Walter de Maria and Smithson and the uh, yeah. the movement in the 70s, late 60s, 68, you know, of, the, of earthworks. Yeah, these... Uh, like artworks that are made out of earth exist outdoors and usually naturally erode. I, be, I mean, that's my understanding about the one I know the most about is this famous one, Spiral Jetty. Oh, yeah. Is that Andrew Gold? No, that's Robert Smithson. Uh, who's yeah. Andrew? Is there an Andrew Goldsworth? Goldsworthy? He does um, earthen sculptures. He has one at... Um, the Storm King Sculpture Garden. Yeah, that's right. I know his work, yeah. yeah. He does these, uh, he's a little more of a populist yes. than the guys that Sam's talking about. Yes. Like, he does, makes things with leaves and with rocks, and they're they're very uh, appealing and beautiful and kind of uh, transcendent looking, and they're like, they make fabulous coffee table books. Whereas Smith's... The, the best, the best one I've always felt is Walter de Maria's Lightning Field. Oh yeah, yeah. That's in Soho. Uh, that one? No. Oh no no, it's in New Mexico. I think northern New Mexico. Yeah. Oh yeah, the one I saw while I was hitchhiking is the one where there's like twelve Cadillacs buried in the ground uh, near Amarillo, Texas. It's like I think it's uh, called Cadillac Ranch. I was writing about it recently. They're Buried in the ground at an angle, all at the same angle, and they're kind of just just their fins, beautiful fins, are sticking up out of the ground. I forget who makes it. I remember driving around New Mexico a few years ago, maybe it was outside of Taos, and encountering a whole community of earth ships. Huh. Do you know what, what is that? Do you know what an earth ship is? No, I don't know what an earth ship is. Um, it's like a home, but it's um. It, it builds oh. up in a subterranean manner, often huh. uh, pods or I don't know how to explain the architecture, but it, it was re- described uh, by a friend of mine as an earth ship. Sam, is this oh. something that's on your radar? Have you heard of an earth ship before? I have, yeah. And have? It's integrated architecture with the earth. I guess Frank Lloyd Wright talked about that, you know, but this, this takes it to a far more radical um, level. Similar to the miners in Australia who mine that stone, which is translucent, but has little specks of different colors in it, huh. which you get from Australia, which is also an earthwork. Oh, you know, yeah. You, you know, diamonds are sort of like an intense piece of earth, you know, of coal that's been, you know, compressed to such a degree, et cetera, over millennia. I have this uh, poem that reminds me that I have this book. It's by Louis Untermeyer, you know, the famous anthologist of poetry. It's yeah. called Modern Poetry. It's, I don't know when, from some, it looks like it's from the 30s. No, 1942 is the last copyright. 
And so I opened it at random, looking for something about Earth. And then I found a poem by Louis Untermeyer. He is the editor, but he, uh, you know, uh, selfishly included his own poems in it. Up a and, sale, for sure, yeah. And so, this is a poem. So I just turned, I like literally opened the book and came to this poem, Caliban in the Coal Mines. So can I read it now? Yeah. Okay. God, we don't like to complain. We know that the mine is no lark. But there's the pools from the rain. But there's the cold and the dark. God, you don't know what it is. You in your well-lighted sky, watching the meteors whiz, warm with the sun, always by. God, if you had but the moon stuck in your cap for a lamp, even you'd tire of it soon, down in the dark and the damp. Nothing but blackness above, and nothing that moves but the cars. God, if you wish for our love, fling us a handful of stars. Holy cow. <laughs> this is the uh, miners speaking to God. Yeah. That's my understanding what's going on in this poem. Really? Well, the lark, he kind of lost me with the lark. Oh, yeah, the lark. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's a terrible. That's the second stop. line. <laughs> yeah, uh, and um, but he should have cut it off with nothing that moves. I thought that was like, you know, then he was would have been shifting out of an awkward situation at best. But he went. Yeah. He went. He's <laughs> in the anthology. I kind of like these old sentimental poems from the old dead white man. I mean, since we are all barely living white men, seems like we have a right to. And this is Caliban, remember, speaking. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that really gives it some. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, whatever anti-hero of the Tempest. Are you jokers, um, worshippers of Gaia? Yeah, I was thinking about the Gaia hypothesis endlessly. Hmm. <laughs> well, the, the other space I wanted to go is in that Gaian direction, which is that Earth is also an element. Yes. Mm. Um, you of know, the four it, elements. Yeah, with fire, mm. water, air, Earth, air, fire, water. Space. Yeah. Space is the fifth element. And I think the Chinese have a fifth, uh, a fifth element, which is wood. I've heard that anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wood, I think, is is synonymous with earth. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's this elemental thing. But I kind of feel as though it's difficult, I find, to talk about earth outside of the other elements. Rather, you know, it's the spaces between the elements mm -hmm. that allow for earth to be what it is, right? Yeah, I found myself the thinking that, are too. Sort of Non-separate. Um, and to really talk about Earth is, is this uh, uh, my feeling of an impossibility. Hmm. Yeah, I found myself thinking, you tend to think of the Earth as this being, as this object floating in space, uh, you know, complete unto itself, a separate, because it's partly the way language works. There's a word, Earth, that seems to mean the actual physical round object or oblate spheroid object that is the earth. Well, but really, Wittgenstein would say it's contextually dependent. Or, or just the fact that there's life on earth obviously has to do with the sun, with the atmosphere, you know, with the rain. So it's, it's not separate from, and maybe somehow the space around the earth, kind of like you're saying, Sam, well, certainly if we were like, clustered with a bunch of other Earths all around us and we couldn't move, you know, maybe Earth wouldn't be Earth. Because the, the elements are are, sim, sim, <laughs> are our sensorium. Mm. In other words, Earth exists as we have this integration of elements that allow us to be and to be a body to be, you know, all that I perceive as my body. But I think the Gaia hypothesis, as I understand it, is the idea that the Earth itself is alive. It's a being. It's yeah. a creature, like a, like a, 
chicken, is it? Like a leopard? Yes, it respirates. It, there's circulation. It's an organism. It's a, and we're part of that organism. That is our true body. We are microbes on this organism, if you will. <laughs> Husky. But then, you know, I mean, I got this far in my philosophical explorations of the Gaia hypothesis, which is, you know, this problem that occurs, I think, in various philosophical areas, which is called essentialism, which I first encountered with um, in African-American studies. So, in other words, is there something that is quintessentially African-American? Suppose you're a black person with black skin you're raised in a completely white suburb. You've never met another black person. Uh, you've ne never heard soul music, rap music. Are you black? Is there something inherently black about a black person? And I don't know if this is exactly the same question, but like, is, is Mother Earth alive, really alive, or is it just a kind of metaphor? Yes, it acts like a living being. I think we can all agree with that. But is it truly alive? And uh, it seems to me it's an unanswerable question. I think it's unanswerable within, this, within the dimension from which we perceive. I mean, mm -hmm. the question I would pose is, is the sun alive? Yeah, doesn't seem to be. But you wouldn't think of it as alive. From our perspective, from, you know, from orthodox perspective or from our perspective, we don't acknowledge it because we don't have the dimensional understanding to see things as they are. Well, I mean, the thing about the sun is no, as far as we know, nothing lives on it. You know, the earth, because I, I was thinking about Mother Earth, you know, and also you speak about someone having being an earth mother. She's an earth mother type, whereas no one ever says uh, he's an earth father, you know, and there is some association of the earth with femininity and also i think the reason there's the gaia hypothesis is like all these creatures come out of the earth the same way a woman gives birth to a being to a child and a life comes out of her whereas like men you know they just have like snot and piss you know they don't yeah speak for yourself <laughs> i'm speaking for myself well can i just say sparrow really interesting dovetailing piggybacking on what you do. <laughs> um, a friend was telling me about this phenomenon. I'm sure it's been around for decades, but I only just heard of it. Um, although I have done it, I just didn't know what it was called. And it hmm. is called earthing, where you, you walk around barefoot, I suppose, and you, you press your palms to the earth, and you spend a lot of time outdoors huh. without shoes. And huh. I was curious about this, so I Googled it, and every image of someone earthing involved a woman huh there wasn't a single image of a man earthing i'm sure they exist but um i didn't really? see any and i, 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 I just, a very very funny piece of evidence um for for your thesis there about the association with the feminine and i got kind of obsessed with some tv commercial from the 60s where you see mother earth and she says don't you mess around with mother earth and then I just looked it up on YouTube, and it was actually 1977, um, and it was the uh, phrase is, it's not nice to fool Mother Nature. And you see Mother Nature herself, uh, she, she comes in riding a vine like Tarzan. She's in the forest, she's in the jungle, and they somebody hands her, some disembodied hand, hands her chiffon margarine. And she says, oh, this is my nature's sweet butter. butter. And then uh, they not, say, no, 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 it's margarine. It's, and then she uh, says, it's not nice to fool Mother Nature with a kind of ominous air. And then she, like, psychically summons this elephant that's standing behind her. And the elephant charges the camera. <laughs> well, to bring in a sort of masculine shadow within that, as I recall, it goes something like, if you think it's butter, but it's snot. Stefan. I wanted to to circle back through this idea of earthing with you know this perspective that we don't know the nature of the sun. 
and mm. we don't know the nature of the moon or of the planets. Mm. In that, if you're doing that earthing thing, and an ant walks over your foot, that ant, from the perspective, from its perspective, is not aware that he's walking across the foot of what we are, our dimension. Mm -hmm. Right. So. So the Gaia hypothesis could be that we we just can't see the the beingness of the Earth. But I believe that we can glimpse it. Uh Yeah. And maybe some within our human perspective actually can learn to sustain themselves in that vision. Um, You know, I I went to a lecture over the summer um, by the documentarian who made this uh, PBS documentary, Chasing the Moon. I don't know if you saw it. I didn't see it, but it was about the. It was uh, made on the 50th anniversary of the uh, the moon landing. Okay. But he was talking about this one photograph that was taken in 1968, an iconic oh. of Earth. I think it was from the moon, or maybe it was. I, I don't remember where it was from, but you can see the the Earth in the distance, yeah. um, illuminated by the sun. And yeah. He claimed that was a, just a, a major shift in, in consciousness. Um, experienced by human beings of, yeah. of consciousness that, that that really paved the way for the environmental movement of the 1970s. Does this strike you as a plausible thesis? I, I thought. It was I mean, very- I've heard this because uh, the whole Earth catalog was based on that photograph, right. which and right. the whole Earth catalog was like a very important influence on my life and was kind of like the Bible of hippies. Kind of was like a. Yeah like a sort of how-to-do-it book about how to be a hippie. And Stuart Brand, who was the editor of the Whole Earth Catalog, was obsessed with this idea, how come there's never been a picture of the whole Earth? And he seemed to have a kind of almost a paranoid theory that for some reason the government was suppressing uh, these photographs, which already existed but hadn't been disseminated, because then people would look at them and realize there's no nations, that's an illusion, ha ha! You know, everything we think about the world, about class, about race, is all destroyed by this one photograph, which proves that we're all one creature, you know. As I recall, it led directly to the first Earth Day in 19- Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Right. Which I went to. That was in the On 14th 70s. Street. Was that hmm. in the early 70s, the first Earth Day? Was that 1972 or 1973? 70, right? That's what Sam is saying. What was in the whole Earth catalog? Well, it was sort of like a proto-internet. You know, uh, it was like all sorts of unexpected, you know, mostly books. It was it was called a catalog of tools. And, you know, on one level, it was about living close to nature, living in a commune, living um, outside of cities. So a lot of it was about self. Uh, what do you call it sustaining yourself you know how to garden how to build a fence and then it would like give you like a it would sell you it would say here's where you buy a good fence post digger and uh you know here's where you get a good colander (laughs) but it's also interspersed with anecdotes and information Mm -hmm. and it became a kind of user's manual for dropping out yeah you know, taking control of your energy, broadly speaking. And also spiritual. It was kind of proto-New Age. Here's Gary Snyder's book. Here's the Upanishads, the Tao Te Ching. All these are tools. This was the metaphor they were using. That um, these are how, What are the tools you need to survive? You need art. You know, you need, every, you need R. Crumb comics. R. Crumb was sort of connected to the... Uh, whole Earth Catalog. I had a few pieces published in the Coevolution Quarterly. At first, it was called the Whole Earth Review. Then later, they changed changed the name to the Coevolution Quarterly. So I received my I uh, achieved my goal of being a kind of philosopher of the hippies. <laughs> I wrote an essay where I went. It was called something like Spiritual Guide to Manhattan. And I went to different spiritual energy points in Manhattan when I lived there. 
and meditated in each spot and then kept a journal. This is what it's like to meditate at the Staten Island Ferry Terminal. This is what it's like to meditate at the um, Museum of Natural History among the totem poles. This is what it's like to meditate in Bloomingdale's. <laughs> I got paid money for that. Yeah, like an archipelago of meditations across Manhattan. Yeah. Or, you know, did you do the outer boroughs? No, it was only Manhattan. You know, I was trying to sort of combat this idea, which in sense is central to what we're talking about, this kind of dichotomy between nature and culture. You know, that we, when, as soon as you start talking about the earth, you start talking about, well, the earth, I don't know, I mean... A lot of soil. Yeah. I don't mean cities, you know. Yeah, a lot of culture, and even this whole sort of thing that we can understand really what's happening, is what covers over our nature. Mm. You know, I think that one needs the perspective of seeing a photograph of the whole Earth. You know, <laughs> that kind of manifestation all the time. So we don't hmm. fall into assumptions and orthodoxies and hmm. conventionalities. I think for I, me, it never, never much affected me. I, I never really felt, looking at a photograph of the Earth, that I was learning anything. <laughs> Maybe I just lack some whatever, imagination or something. Well, do you think there's a sonic equivalent to the photograph <laughs> of the Earth? Well, it's funny because I wanted to sing this song, Earth Angel by the Penguins, um, you know, and I was thinking, I want to sing a song about Earth. And then I thought, I, I'm trying to think the band Rare Earth, the band Earth, Wind and Fire. And then I thought, wow, this is one of the greatest songs ever written, Earth is Angel by the Penguins, 1954. Uh, I know that song. Do uh, you mind if I sing it? Not at all. Okay. Do you that song? I have the lyrics, you know. Earth angel, earth angel, will you be mine, my darling dear? Love you all the time. I'm just a fool, a fool in love with you. Earth angel, earth angel, the one I adore, love you forever and evermore. I'm just a fool, a fool in love with you, with you. I fell for you, I knew the vision of your loveliness. I hope and I pray that someday that I'll be the vision of your happiness. <laughs> I'll stop there. But to I, me, I guess Earth Angel, the song, yeah, I think, Sam, if this is what you're suggesting about me, is that I think I am a person much more impressed by sound than by sight. Uh, and... I do feel this idea, this image of the Earth Angel, even more than the Earth Mother. I don't yeah. know what it means, but it touches something in me. I do believe that the portal to this hyperdimensionality has <laughs> to do with love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good guess. <laughs> no. Have either of you two seen the Laudato Si'? The have you read rather the papal encyclical on the Earth and the environment by um, none other than the current Pontiff, one Pope Francis? No, it was I don't published. Know. Oh, it's worth I, checking. I have it. A reference to it, but I haven't looked at the bull. It's it's actually quite beautiful. It has a it has a Whitmanic quality in that it um it charts out the various um interconnections between organisms on planet earth in a huh. way that's um very appealing um poetically and um i i do think that it uh inspires one ethically to uh, to think about conservation and um mm. a peaceful relationship engagement with the terrestrial domain 
I recommend could you, it. I could you it's, could you hum um, a few bars? <laughs> uh, we, I, I'm working on the libretto. That's not that's not a, that's not a bad idea. I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna write a libretto for a papal papal and that is a good idea. Papal, if you don't have it in front of you. Can you quote some of it? Uh, sure. Yeah. Let me I probably find some. So um, I guess for me, more than anything else, Earth is evocative of some primordial verve, urge, 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 urge. Always the primordial urge. Isn't that mm. a Walt mm. Whitman? Yeah, that's a song of myself, right? Yeah, I think that really it's interesting. Like you do. I find myself thinking of sexuality when I think of the earth. And and also, like in my experience, walking around around my house, you know, even now because it's such a warm winter and the moss is visible, uh, you know, just this sense that really the earth, life on earth is so sexual. It's all about these... Uh, animals and plants procreating and creating these fruiting bodies yeah it's uh, like you can't separate to me earth from from the sex act uh-huh well, but someone was telling me the other day that that fish don't have sex <laughs> i'm waiting for pope francis yeah uh, me too if we approach nature and the environment without openness to awe and wonder, if we no longer speak the language of fraternity and beauty in a relationship with the world, our attitude will be that of masters, consumers, ruthless exploiters, unable to set limits on their immediate needs. By contrast, if we feel intimately united with all that exists, then sobriety and care will well up spontaneously. Mm. I love the anti-capitalist uh, elements in Catholicism, particularly, you know, recently in the last, whatever it is, 30 years. Definitely, right? I mean, I think really, how can we talk about Earth without talking about capitalism and its absolute disregard, unconcern, unconsciousness of Earth, really? but also of William Blake's Dark Satanic Mills. You should do a course of hopping across this earth, Sparrow, meditating oh. in like these places where the mills are still in operation. Mm. You know, places like yeah. Indonesia and certain parts of China and all you know, in India and you know the the mills are out there and South America variously and so on yeah I would like to do that yeah me too I was talking about Poughkeepsie earlier I grew up next to um, a site of great environmental um, degradation you know the dumping of chemicals into the Hudson River which when I was born toward the late 70s Pete Seeger was beginning to uh, clean up mm. through his clear organization Hmm. But I remember a lot of public outcry um, over GE, it was, that dumped all of oh, the young yeah. decade after decade after decade. Then found some way of getting out of the, uh, what's it called, dredging? All of that um, half-lifing chemical. PCBs, something like that. PCBs, absolutely, PCBs. And it was one of the rare successful... Uh, yeah. activist uh, movements. It's very interesting to me because my parents being communists or my mother being officially a fellow traveler and my dad being a communist that, uh, you know, that Pete Seeger, you know, communism failed kind of in every sense. And Pete Seeger was really a loyal Stalinist. And then he kind of reinvented himself as a uh, he loved boats, you know, and it, he just had this idea, like, wouldn't it be great to have a sloop that went up and down the Hudson? I read some, I, I read books about Pete Seeger. I don't know why, I have like a real feeling for him. And some friend, of, he ran he ran into some friend of his, uh, like at the Beacon train station in Beacon, New York, and said, and his friend said, hey, I'm building that boat. And Pete Seeger said, what boat? And the guy said, remember you were talking about making a sloop 
And Pete Seeger had lots of ideas. He didn't really remember having mentioned it. And then it went on to be, you know, like an incredibly successful movement, almost mystically successful. You know, <laughs> I um, spent a few summers on the Clearwater sailing up and down the Hudson River hmm. when I was in high school as a student volunteer. And huh. it was a pretty magical experience between Poughkeepsie and New York City. And we would spend about a week at the 79th Street Boat Basin. Oh, on nice. The upper west, bringing out on my campers, camp kids, and teaching them an ecological lesson. That was a, a magical experience. It was. It's it was a real great. sloop, right? It's it's not yeah. powered by a motor. It has a small motor for emergencies, but yeah, it's an 18th century exact replica. Most of the time, you know, it's um it's moving around by sail, and it's a very big boat. So back in the day, Andrew, were you shoulder to shoulder with Pete at the prow of the Clearwater? <laughs> with Pete Seeger? Yeah, Pete Seeger was sort of a father Earth figure in the um, the Hudson Valley. And uh, Did he spend yeah. much time on the Clearwater? I mean, did you sail with him? Yeah, I sailed with him once. Once I watched as he jumped over, he went swimming. And uh, it just so happened that the whole of the Clearwater had been painted. He didn't realize it. So <laughs> he, he was dyed red. Fitting <laughs> <Huh. laughs> for an old communist. <laughs> there, is, there, is symbolic, there is symbolic meaning there, no doubt. That's very funny. But he was a Father Earth figure. You mentioned the absence of them um, from, from my youth. He was obsessed with uh, with living in nature, you know, he grew up. I think his dad was a professor at Harvard, yeah. and um, he became interested in some guy who wrote books about how to, you know, forage in the forest and build your own hut. And so, you know, then he got blacklisted as a communist, and he was like, "This is great! I can like finally build that log cabin I've been wanting to build." Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's all sorts of also echoes of the Green Man, mm. which is a Druidian manifestation in part. He's a kind of Father Earth figure, the Green Man. Yeah. Yeah. And the Green Man, there's a Green Man that was a, uh, subsumed into Catholicism, right? The uh, some sort of green saint-like figure, green theology. I, I this guy Matthew Fox, um, oh. pretty far leftist Christian theologian writes about uh, the green man in the context of medieval Christianity. Huh. The green man, I picture him, he has all these like vines for beard. He's like a man who's kind of like made out of um, what do you call vegetation kind of. Made out of tree. A moss man, right? Yeah. A little bit like the swamp thing in uh, DC Comics who's kind of like a swamp come to life. But I think Robin Hood might be connected to the green man. This idea of this figure who lives always in the forest is kind of self-sufficient, but, you know, robs the evil exploiters. This um, kind of this, for me, points a little toward the what's called the Thonian. You know, remember we talked about that in relation to Thoreau and the bog. What is that, the Thonian? Uh, the Thonian is the primordial muck out of which creation emerges. And I think it's almost kind of lost in today's present-day mythology, this idea of um, the kind of natural, you know, uh, of the green man, you know, this kind of figure who lives in nature far from civilization. Maybe the Unabomber was kind of a, the last. You know, the last of the <laughs> the last of the Robin Hoods. But the, I mean, I'm not defending uh, the Unabomber. The dignity of the hermit. Mm, yeah. A very powerful tarot card. The man holding mm. the lantern at the entrance to the path. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, the path through the forest. Path also uh, esoterically speaking. Right. To be on the path. But, I mean, it's one of the things that literally happens once you're dealing 
with the earth once you're away from civilization, once you're lost in the woods like Hansel and Gretel. You know, you you like literally can't find anything. You don't know where the hell you are. So it's, you know, it's a real, I was just looking the other day in the woods behind yeah. my house and I was saying like to myself, does moss really grow on the north side of trees? Just in case I someday really get stuck somewhere in the real uh, natural world. I think it doesn't. Yeah. Minor investigation. Oh, really? I found it to be relatively consistent, relatively yeah. consistent, mm. you know, principally to the north. If you find the median point, it's sort of that's northerly. Yeah. Or you could just wait until nightfall and hope you can see the star. Oh, yeah, but it's a little dangerous in the woods in nightfall. <laughs> Depending on how much moon there is, that's one thing about living in the country. You realize how important the moon is. Uh, for traveling around at night you know there are some I actually was shocked the first time I saw that like when you walking around in the Catskills on a full moon it uh, you can see your shadow like a dark black shadow the moon casts an actual shadow and then if there's no moon you're doomed you can't see anything <laughs> like a bear could come out and more or less destroy you it's as black <laughs> as black the Yukon night yeah I just have to walk around screeching to keep away the bears. I've done that. <laughs> it's like uh, the way you talk to your computer. <laughs> I, I did what, what, want to talk about, there There are some cognates of Earth that are interesting. Um, what are they? You know, we should save those for, you know, when we talk about William Blake next time. I, I can read this Emily Dickinson poem. I mean, since my last poem was such a failure, that Louis Untermeyer <laughs> poem, I feel like maybe I can try to redeem myself with a, you know, a actually literary poem, also from this same weird book, uh, Modern Poetry. He, in fact, he gives it a title, like it's from the old days where they would, uh, you know, regularize the uh, punctuation of Emily Dickinson and then give him titles. So th there are no dashes or, or some of the dashes? Right, there's no dashes. There's just commas. And then every first uh, word of every line is capitalized. And it's not precisely about the earth. He calls it the mountains grow unnoticed. But it seems to me the mountains are kind of a metaphor for the earth. Well, anyway, you decide. Well, read it a bit rough. <laughs> okay. The mountains grow unnoticed. The mountains grow unnoticed, their purple figures rise without attempt, exhaustion, assistance, or applause. In their eternal faces, the sun with broad delight looks long and last and golden for fellowship at night. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.